We're going to pray and we're going to jump into Romans 8, 9 to 11. Uh, 9 to 11, only three verses. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great opportunity to go into your word together. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. By your word, we know truth and we know you. Through your word, we know the gospel, which is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. Father, by your word, you show us your will. You show us what you expect, what you don't expect, what displeases you, what pleases you. I pray that we would be helped tonight to understand your word by your spirit. We know that your word says that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds as the Holy Spirit works to take what we learn and what we are informed by and move it into our living, into our experience, that we not just be hearers of the word, but doers of it. I pray that this would be an opportunity for us to be changed and transformed more into the image of Christ. Visit us now, we pray, by your spirit. Help us. Give us gripping attention. Help us to understand. Help us to make application by your help. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. All right, so if you got a Bible, you can turn to it. If not, all the texts are gonna appear on the screen before you. So I'm gonna read our text for this evening, and then we'll just jump in and start going through. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. A great text, so much in there. Uh, Really, you could create several sermons out of the rich theology that's packed in here. So following the heels of verses seven and eight, which read this, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this here is talking about being in your own resources, minus God and minus the power of God, flesh or sin nature, as the NIV would translate it, is the only resource you have. We all lived in this flesh or in the sin nature at one time. Before you were born again, before you had regenerated life in you, before God took out your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh, put his spirit in you and gave you a new spirit. You were this. Your mind was set on the flesh. You were hostile to God. You could not submit to God's law because you would not submit to God's law. We were all there. Okay, so that is the state of every single person who is what we would call commonly an unbeliever. Someone who has not entrusted themselves to Christ, someone who has not turned from their sin, asked for God's mercy, asked for forgiveness based on Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Those and all of those are in the flesh. 
and you cannot, it is an impossibility to be pleasing to God in the flesh. What does this mean, friends? It means there is no neutrality according to God. In other words, you're either for him or you're against him. You're either at peace with him, you love him, you serve him, or you are at war with him, you are in hostile relationship with him, and you want nothing to do with him. Those are the options. Though, listen to me, I understand that for many people, they are not actively shaking their fists at heaven. Or maybe worse, middle finger to heaven. They're not doing that. They're just indifferent, apathetic. I could care less. To be that way, friends, is to put the middle finger up to God. Now you say, why? Listen, do you realize that from him comes all things, including the very oxygen and breath and beating heart that every single person enjoys subconsciously? Breathe in, breathe out. Gift from God. And so we live 100% off of God's gift and to then throw up your fist at him. How offensive is that? I mean, think about it. God is the one who provides life and breath and everything else and we say, I don't need you, I don't want you. Yet if he just took a few gifts away, we lay on the ground lifeless. And so the Lord is the great giver, the great generous one. In fact, in, in Matthew, Jesus says he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And we're like, I don't like rain. But listen, in an arid climate in the desert, rain was life. And if it did not rain, you did not eat. The animals starved and you starved. And so in the Middle East, in the desert climate, rain was life. And so that passage is saying that God gives life to the just and the unjust, those who, who are his and those who are not his. He causes his son to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is called common grace. God is good to everyone regardless of their uh, position with him. And so God's goodness often gets met with hostile resistance. And yet Romans 2, if you remember, says it's the kindness of God that's meant to lead us to repentance. And so... We're either hostile to him or we're in loving relationship with him. Those are the options. Now, we just had the flesh, but look, you, however, who's the you? The Roman Christians who are reading this letter. You, however, you Christians are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. Now, this is, this is quite fresh. Flesh versus spirit, and you see the capital S there, the ESV, uh, rightly translates the, the, the word there as the Holy Spirit and not just our immaterial part or the soul or the spirit. We are in the realm of, under the dominion of, the spirit, not the flesh. We are not under the power of the flesh. We are not under the domain of the flesh. We are not under the dominion of the flesh. No, we are in the spirit. This is a new realm, a new sphere, and we have new power by the Spirit of God, the Creator. So that is the reality that Christians find themselves in. At the end of the message, we'll make practical application. I know oftentimes for Christians, we don't feel this surge of power, this surge of energy, this 
what we would think maybe would be the Holy Spirit living in us. Yet, I'll argue at the end, the Holy Spirit works in very non-spectacular ways. Sometimes he works in spectacular ways, but often he works in very normal, everyday, slow ways. To be in the Spirit is to belong to Christ, friends. This is the deal. If you're in the Spirit, you are Jesus. You are his possession. You are bought with a price. You are the bride of Christ, in fact. And there's a bride price, and it was his own blood. So to, be, to belong to Jesus is to be in the Spirit. When does this occur? That's the question I want to ask real quick. So let's ask a theological question. When is the transfer from the realm or domain of the flesh into the realm or domain of the spirit. Let me think for just a second. When does this happen? The Bible is not silent on this question. It's very clear. Is it after we trust in Christ for salvation? Is it after we're born again? Does it come much later down the road, maybe five, 10 years Does it come after you meet some super powerful Christian and he lays hands on you or she lays hands on you and prays for you and then you are in the spirit? When does this happen? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says this. The hymn there is Jesus. In him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. So there's the action that we take. We believe in him. We're sealed, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So there's the answer right there. When you heard the gospel and you believed the gospel, at that very moment, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, if we want to get into theological nitty-gritties, you are actually born again prior to believing, and the being born again, the first breath of new life is belief. It's belief, it's I believe. You are made alive by the Holy Spirit, and the very next action, if you wanna talk about milliseconds, the very next act is that you believe, you exercise faith, and the very next act is you are justified. And what we're talking about here is the ordo salutis, Latin for the order of salvation. When do these things occur in reality? What comes first? What's the order? This text says, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee or down payment of the inheritance until we acquire possession of it? Now, interestingly, you could translate that, or until God redeems his possession. Now, I like the second one better because it points to we are the possession of God and he will eventually have us in full. There's an already and a not yetness to this where God does have us, yet the fullness of that reality is not yet to the praise of his glory. So when does it happen? The moment you are born again. So you are put, friends, into a brand new realm of existence the moment you become a believer, the second you become a believer, or we could say the millisecond prior to believing. (laughs) 
You, friends, are not in the flesh. That's what I want you to hear. You are not under its power anymore. You are not under its dominion anymore. And friends, you do not have to live a defeated Christian life. Let me say that again. You do not have to live a defeated Christian life. Sin does not have rule, power, and reign over you any longer. You have the spirit of the living God dwelling inside of you, and he gives you the power to resist temptation and to win when the devil shoots flaming darts at you. You are not in the sphere or dominion of the flesh anymore. You have a new power. Sin's power, Satan's power has been broken. Paul to the Corinthians says this in chapter six, verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Think about that image there. The Old Testament temple going into the first century when Jesus walked the earth and even when Paul wrote this, the temple was not destroyed until 70 AD. Remember, there was courts. There was the court of the Gentiles, then there was uh, the court of the women, and then you had the, the part where the men could go, but then you had the inner courts where only the priests could go, and then you had the inner holy of holies, this little cube where only one priest could go once a year on the Day of Atonement. We just talked about this a few sermons ago. And the idea there is that the manifest presence of God dwelt inside of the temple. So the image is, you are the temple. What does that mean? What's the image? You are the place where God now dwells. You carry God around with you everywhere you go. You go for pizza at Minio's in Squirrel Hill, the Holy Spirit goes with you. Isn't that amazing? He's not just located in the worship gathering on Sundays. He goes with you where you go. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Now there is a sense, Paul talks about the church itself being like a temple, but this text is talking about you individually. Whom you have from God, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. Now, let me just pause on that for a second. It is so hard for us to believe what Paul just said, okay? You are not your own. Because all the advertising, the air we breathe, and maybe even your parents, you know, brought you up in an environment where it's all about you. I am my own, I do what I want, I am, you know, small g God. You wouldn't say that that boldly, but that's the way we think about ourselves. I am free to do what I will, when I will, with whom I will, and who are you to tell me otherwise? This is kind of the rugged individualism that we live in. Yet this text says, not if you're a Christian. No, you are not your own. Do you realize you are not your own? You belong to someone else. You belong to God. You're not your own. Why? Because you're bought with a price. You're owned by somebody. They paid for you. Who? Jesus with his very blood. Bought with a price. So, this is what should result, glorify God with your body. Your body's the temple. The spirit of God lives in there. You're not your own. So what should we do? We should live in a way that glorifies God with our body. 
So now I can make all kind of application. No more cheesecake, no more sugar in your coffee, no, no more sweeteners. No, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about don't use your body for sin. It's what Romans has already been talking about. Don't use the members of your body to sin against the very God who bought you. Remember, flesh dwells in the body. I argued this in Romans 7. Flesh dwells in the body and uses the body to sin. The tongue, the eyes, the hands, the feet. It uses your body to sin. So rather than use your body to sin, use your body now to glorify God, to resist sin and temptation, and rather to do good. This is a very simple way of Ephesians saying it. He says, if you were a thief, steal no longer. Okay, that's the don't. But then he says, and work. Here's the positive. And work so that what? Who remembers why? so that you might have something to share with anyone in need. It's a total reversing. What you used to do, you used to take from people. Now I want you to work so that you can give to people. A 100% reversal of the way you used to live. In the flesh, you were a taker. In the spirit, you're a giver. Why? Because we look like God now. That's what it is to be godly. Who is God? The most generous being, period. And so we should reflect him and be generous people. One of the ways you can be more godly or grow in sanctification is to practice generosity. Not just in money, because money's important, don't get me wrong, it's good to give your money away. But some people treasure their time more than they treasure their money. And so they're like, look, I'll give my money, just don't ask me to do anything or be anywhere or sacrifice of my time, because my time is mine. And Paul would say, you're not your own. Right? Or maybe it's your talents and your skills. See, our, we, our whole self has been bought by God and we are to be generous people. This is one way in which we can grow practically. Practice sacrificial giving, yes, of your money, but of your time and of your abilities. Give. And you know who will repay you? God. You'll be, as Matthew 6 says, storing up treasure in heaven. Won't that be a glorious thing? To get to heaven one day and to see the treasure you've amassed because you went from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit. You used to be a taker, but then you were a giver and God rewards all the giving. Even a cup of cold water given in my name will not lose its reward. This is the beauty of being in the spirit. So you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, I don't think this is doing what Paul does in other places, saying, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. I don't think this is Peter saying, make your calling and election sure. I think it's, it's a rhetorical question, it's a device, it's a literary device to get you to say, yes, that the spirit of God does dwell in me. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, you say, well, yes. And then he just makes a plain statement. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So there is no such thing as a Christian that is genuinely born again that is not in this realm of the spirit. 
It's a contradiction in terms or a contradiction of reality. If you belong to Jesus, you are in the spirit. Now, verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, this text is a little bit complicated, okay? I don't often quote theologians, but I'm gonna quote a little bit of Tom Schreiner here. He says this, believers die because of their sin. This is Romans 6, 23, right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Believers die because of their sin. So even though we are not in the flesh anymore, we still have to pay the ultimate price, which is death. But as we'll see in the text, it's not the end of the story. Believers die because of their sin. They are raised because of righteousness. Righteousness here refers to the gift of righteousness granted to believers by the work of Christ with whom they are united by faith. So Schreiner here sees the righteousness accomplished by Jesus' life, living the will of God, loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving his neighbor as himself, that being given to us as a gift in the gospel, and we being united to him, we have his righteousness as ours. So what once was our sin, this is the cause of death. Although the body is dead because of sin, our bodies are going to return to the dust from which they came. That's going to happen. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, the spirit is the one who is going to be an active agent in raising us from the dead, as will the father and the son. Now, I want to point out something that I didn't point out earlier, because I did just say the spirit is the active agent who will raise us, but so will the father and the son. The Trinity is so connected that you can't talk about one person of God without talking about the other. So look at this. The spirit of God, this would be the father. The same spirit here is called the spirit of Christ. But here, he's the spirit. So which one is it? All three. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is a person, a third person of God, himself with emotion, intellect, will, being. Remember in Acts when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the apostles about how much money they got from their, their sale of property? And they both drop dead for lying. It was a judgment. And Peter says, you have not lied to man, but to God. And in the context, he's talking about lying to the Holy Spirit. Being the Holy Spirit is God and you've lied to him. You can't lie to the force of gravity. <laughs> Think about this. When we talk about force or power, these are created things. The Spirit is the author of all created things. He's the creator himself. But it's not wrong to call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus. It's not wrong to call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of the Father. It's not wrong to call the Spirit the Spirit. So the Spirit is life. He's the one who brings new life 
new regeneration life, and in the future, he's going to bring new resurrection life. Why? Because of righteousness. Because we have the righteousness of Christ granted to us. This is why. Sin, death. Righteousness, life. The good news is we have the righteousness that we need for life. Yet it's not ours, it's gifted to us. Isn't that good news? That the righteousness required to enter into life and life eternal is ours by way of Jesus' accomplishment. This given to us by the Holy Spirit. Now let's move to verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that's the Father. He's referring to the spirit being the spirit of the Father. Dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, I... I wanted to go all in on the resurrection, I'll be honest here, but that does come in just a few verses later in Romans 8. So we will do that, but I just want to give you a preview now. Did you know that the Old Testament had very rich theological understanding of the resurrection? Though in the New Testament, it's far more clear. But did you know that resurrection was not hidden in the Old Testament? Here's one text, Daniel 12:2, speaking of future resurrection. Daniel prophesies, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now Jesus talks about this dual resurrection here. We don't like to think about the resurrection of the damned, but that's a reality too. Jesus talks about it here in John John 5, 26 to 29. He says, as the father has life in himself, the author of life, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. The father has given Jesus the gift to author life, especially while uh, he was on earth and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. That's a reference to Daniel chapter seven where the son of man inherits a kingdom and a dominion that will never end. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the voice of Jesus, and come out. That's pretty remarkable. Think about the 7.8, almost 8 billion people on the planet right now. Within 80 to 100 years, all 7 to 8 billion are gonna be gone. And a new 7 to 8 billion world will emerge. Now that has been going on for generation after generation after generation after generation. Jesus is here claiming one day those multiplied billions of people are going to hear his voice and come out of the dust. Can you imagine that? I don't know if you guys are Lord of the Rings fans, but I think about, uh, Brett could do this so much better. I'm sorry, Brett, I'm gonna botch this. He's gonna hate me later. But, 
There, there's, a, there's the white wizard, and he's calling up demon armies from the dirt, and they just kind of pull themselves out of the ground, and, and they're like just ready for war, but they're dark, and they're ugly, and he, they put the white hand on their head. How'd I do, Brett? Pretty good? Yes, thumbs up. All right, good. The, Think about that, like people climbing up out of the dust or rising up out of the ocean. How many people the ocean have taken, has taken? Countless people. And here Jesus is literally claiming, listen, don't marvel at this. <laughs> here we are marveling. For an hour is coming. We're gonna get this done in one hour. <laughs> when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, we often don't like to think about the resurrection of judgment, but do you realize that even unbelievers will have new bodies for eternal damnation? Have you ever thought about that? No, you haven't thought about that because who wants to think about that? We don't want to meditate on that. Don't even talk about that. However, this is a reality that the Bible is not silent on. Now, we have no idea the extent to which the resurrection of the damned, what that's gonna look like. C.S. Lewis took a stab at it with his The Great Divorce. He has a picture of the gray town where it's raining and everyone's mad and angry and there's constant conflict and constant separation from people and everyone's miserable. Perhaps that's a picture. Uh, I do think the flames that Jesus speaks about, I do think those are metaphoric for judgment and for, for punishment. But honestly, we don't know what hell is gonna be like. But you will need a resurrection body to go there. Which is pretty frightening, isn't it? So there's a resurrection to life and he says, for those uh, who do good or have done good. Now, how do, we, how do we fit that in with the gospel? Because I thought we're not saved by good works. We're saved by faith alone. Isn't that true? So what is it? Is it the good things we do or is it faith in Christ that saves us? Well, what Jesus is speaking of here is not entrance into life or being born again. He's speaking of result. What results from being born again? It's the same thing that Paul is speaking of here when he says, listen, we're no longer in the domain of the flesh. We are in the domain or power of the spirit. What does the spirit lead us to do? Good. So when you are born again and you have the Holy Spirit, you begin to do good. It's the evidence that you are actually not in the flesh. And so, one day there will be a, I think, let's bring out the evidence on Judgment Day. But it won't be because your good works have outweighed your bad works. It will be living proof to all angels and men that you actually were not in the flesh, but in the spirit and your life changed and was radically transformed and you began, yes, slowly and progressively, but you began to do good and do less evil. As we've said many times, when we're born again, it's not that we become sinless, but we do begin to sin less. 
But that's in the negative. Not just sinless, we begin to do good. We pray for people, we care for one another, we bless one another, we serve one another, we forgive when wronged. We reconcile when there's conflict and there's division. We do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. You see, and this is the evidence that I think will be brought to court on your judgment day. Look, they really were born again. Look, I can, there's this massive list. You know, scrolling through the iPad, judgment day. Look at all this. And all for reward. Isn't that beautiful? So, the goodness here proves your being in the spirit and not in the flesh, it doesn't get you entrance in. Does that make sense? Raise your hand if that makes sense. Because if, if not, we need to clarify more. All right, good, excellent, perfect. So there's coming a great resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. And the just are only just because they have the justness of Christ. Again, John 11, 23 to 27. I love this text. This is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the the friends of Jesus. Lazarus has died. Jesus has let him be in the grave for three to four days, and now he's gonna go and wake him up. And so he arrives on the scene. Everyone's upset. Martha is especially troubled, and he says to her, your brother will rise again. Now, think about this. In terms of resurrection, this is pre-Jesus resurrection, pre-epistles. And so the rich theology that we have in like 1 Corinthians 15, that massive resurrection chapter, has not been written yet. Jesus has not been risen from the dead. All they're going off off of here is Old Testament texts. Like Ezekiel, the dry bones, son of man prophesied to these bones, live you know, and the, and the muscles and the joints come on and a great army is standing and the breath of God breathes and they, and they become alive. Resurrection. All they're going off of in this text in redemptive history is Old Testament. So Jesus said to her, listen, Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, listen, this is pretty profound. You didn't know Martha was a theologian. I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. How does she know about that? Because Jews in the first century and prior to her had a rich theology of resurrection. I know he'll rise one day when you call and everyone will come out of the tombs. (laughs) Remember that was John 6, this is John 11. Jesus said to her, I love this, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And look at her response. Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe that you are the Christ. And more than the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. The one who was prophesied all through the Old Testament who would come into the world and save us. You are the Messiah. Now Jesus, listen, this quote from Jesus here in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life, is exactly what he was saying prior to in John 6. There's coming a day when all the dead will hear his voice and rise. 
It's more than that. It's not less than that. Jesus is the power by which all the dead will rise. Now, I thought you said earlier, it's the Holy Spirit who is going to be the agent of resurrection. Listen, we don't pull the Trinity apart. There is a sense in which the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will cause the great resurrection. And so Jesus is going to call and all those dead will come alive. And he is the resurrection. Now, for us who are in the Spirit, our hope of resurrection is Jesus himself. This is baptism, right? We are united with him in his death, burial, out of the water, newness of life, resurrection. Romans 6 says we are living a kind of resurrection life now. Did you know that? What does it mean to be living a resurrected life now? Newness of life. It means you are not in the flesh anymore. You are in the realm, power, and domain of the spirit. That's what it means. The resurrected life is to be in the spirit, and there is coming a day, friends, when the flesh, which is in the body, and the body itself will be buried, and the great resurrection of a new body minus flesh will be fully realized. Now that is for us, but there's also a sense in which the whole creation will be resurrected. This is what Romans 8 later teaches. So not only will we be resurrected without the ability to sin anymore, and the body will not have the ability to get hurt and sick anymore. I mean, can you imagine never popping a mucinex again? Like, no more ibuprofen. Like, I... I, I thought about this today. I was, I was sitting, I had my laptop, I'm typing, and, and I go like this in my neck, and I'm like, oh, man. And I, I just took a second to notice my body. Do you ever do that? And you're like, my whole body is sore as sore. And I don't even work out. Like, what's the matter with me? And, and I think what happens is as you get older, your body just begins to tell you, you're broken, death lives in you, and you're gonna feel it, man. Like, Get up with your pillow just not fluffed just right and you're going to get up and, and, and someone's going to call your name and you're going to be like, what's up? <laughs> and someone calls your name and you're like, hey, what's up? What's going on? And you, you feel like you need to go to the chiropractor and get that thing you know, cracked out of you. Your body feels the effects of sin and the curse. And you know what I mean. You can't wait for resurrection sometimes, Right? The pain, just bodily pain of living on earth, just living, just regular cleaning and sleeping and working, just your body hurts, man. And if it doesn't, just wait, you're getting older, it'll happen to you too, you know? And, and so anyway, the resurrected body, friends, I don't think is gonna have sore muscles. I'm, I'm reminded of a, a, a Joni Erickson Tata quote. Um, how many of you remember Joni Erickson Tata? D- diving accident when she was like 17, quadriplegic. She's still alive. She's been that way since she was 17. She's in her 60s, I think her late 60s. Can you imagine that? And she ha- spoke in one of her books of this dream she had. She said, I had this dream and I was swimming. She was a swimmer. And she said, I had full use of my body And she said this, this was the the most profound thing to me. She said, as I swam, 
I didn't get tired, but got stronger with every stroke. And I just thought, man, that would be awesome. So imagine like really running hard or riding a bike hard or swimming hard and and you don't wear out as you go, but you get stronger and faster as you go. Could you imagine that? Like we might attempt to do a great lake if we had that. So let's imagine you're like, I'm going to do Erie this weekend. Like the whole thing. Absolutely. That could be your future friends. Maybe the Amazon because the piranhas will be nice at that point. They're not gonna be trying to eat you up. They might aid you, you might come under you and you know, kind of help you along. But I'm serious, like put imagination to resurrected life, because we're headed there. So imagine being able to run and grow stronger, swim and swim faster. And you guys rollerblade? Is that a thing of the 80s? Do we still rollerblade? My kids are the only ones. And they were born in the 2011s. You guys are all haters, man. All of you. Good Christmas gift, Amazon Prime rollerblades, I'm telling you. Hey, or ice skating, does anyone ice skate? Am I the only one in here? All right, a few ice skaters, all right. So imagine being able to skate and not be like this. You know, you're just gliding, do a lap around like this, looking at all the kids, just exhausted, sweat pouring off you. Just being able to go faster and faster and faster. Okay, I'm just trying to put imagination to resurrected life because we often think of it just in the abstract. But it's not gonna be abstract. It's gonna be real. Real. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life, life to your mortal bodies. Paul talks about uh, mortality being swallowed up by immortality. So you can imagine our frailness being sought after by non-frailness, mortality being sought after by immortality and gulp and we're alive. That's our future, friends. Tom Schreiner again. He says, the physical body of believers, which includes the whole person, like body and soul or body and spirit, the physical body of believers indicates that Christians are still part of the old age. The soreness the temptability, the frustration, the agitation, the anger, the disappointments. Anyone ever hit their finger or their kind of web with a hammer? Yeah, it hurts, doesn't it? Anyone ever accidentally have a screw like let loose and the bit jam into your hand? Yeah, that hurts. My uncle does drywall. He has literally screwed screws into his hand and had to back them out with the reverse. Many times that happens if you're a drywaller because you're just like, ah, and you're stuck. And you're just like, all right, band-aid that up and keep going, man. Don't mess with construction workers, man. They're... 
So the physical body of believers indicates that Christians are still part of the old age. Your sore neck, ah, we're still living in this old age. Even though they possess the new age gift of the spirit. Think about that. We're in this dualness. We have this old physical body and our souls still live in this old age. Yet we have this new age piece, the Holy Spirit, living inside of us. Full redemption will come on the day of resurrection when all sin and weakness will be left behind. In addition, the presence of the Spirit demonstrates that believers will not be saddled with their weak and corruptible bodies forever. The Spirit is a life-giving Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a life-giving Spirit and will overcome sin and death through the resurrection of the body. I I am so looking forward to that. Like, I'm not longing for death Like, I'm not morbid like that. However, I am longing for resurrection life. Anyone else? I can't wait. I can't wait. I really can't. All right, so let's let's finish with a few brief applications, and I mean brief. New life, all right, so listen, this, this is application time, ready? New life is life in line with reality, the reality of the Spirit, and the ability to operate and rest in this new reality. All right, let me say that again. I know it's kind of abstract. Listen close. This new life in the spirit is life in line with God's reality, reality, and the ability to operate and rest in this new reality. All right, I'm gonna talk about what that means in a second. A realigning of our thinking, feeling, and doing Sanctification is what I'm talking about. Current resurrection life is the ability to be happy in God and hopeful for the future while serving others with joy. Let me say that one more time. Sanctification, current resurrection life is the ability to be happy in God and hopeful for the future while serving others with joy. Five quick, brief applications. You know that you're living in the spirit when these things are happening. God allows or causes our plans to be frustrated so that we learn that we are not God's small g or in control. And God strips us of the notion that we are in control. And you begin to be okay with that. Anyone thinking of James 4? What you should say is, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, all such talk is boasting. Wait, you mean I don't get to plot my own course and plod my own destiny? Not if the Lord doesn't will. (laughs) So friends, what does this mean? It means we have plans and God has plans and often our plans are frustrated. Anyone, Anyone with me? Resurrection life is you beginning to be able to be like, it's all good. His will be done, not mine. That doesn't mean you don't make plans and seek to execute them, but when they get frustrated and they will, you don't freak out. You don't go on a binge. 
You don't lash out. You say, oh God, help me to rest and relax in your will. That's called resurrection life. I know you don't like that. You want me to tell you that your bank account will fill up and your investments will multiply and your health will increase? That's not legitimate resurrection life. Legitimate resurrection life is when it goes bad and you're still okay. Let's do another one. When God allows or causes possessions to be destroyed or broken down, that we might learn to store up treasure in heaven instead of on earth. How many of you have had possessions destroyed or broken down? Absolutely. I experienced this last night. <laughs> I had some people at my house. I had a beautiful painting I bought in Uganda. I had it framed, and to keep people safe, we had my new nine-month-old 130-pound puppy downstairs, and he got on top of the desk somehow and got about four feet up in the air and just shredded that painting. I have witnesses. I brought it upstairs to show everybody. I was like, look at this. This is awesome. And I didn't snap the dog's neck, though I wanted to. You know what? You know what I actually thought? This sounds crazy, but this is how I process these kind of things. God shredded the painting <laughs> through the dog. Now, do I believe that the spirit of God possessed the dog and it like went, you know, without? No, but the Lord's will was that that painting would get destroyed or it wouldn't have happened. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. If it wasn't his will, it would still be hanging on the wall in one piece. Now, I need to be okay with that. You say, that's not okay. You're right, but I need to be okay with it. This is called resurrection life, friends. You say, I don't like this. All right, well, here's another one. <laughs> when God allows or causes troubles and trials to grow, Because you know what happens with trials and troubles? We're supposed to consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. For the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, James 1. You see, God uses trials and troubles to grow us. He wants you to realize that this current earth under the curse is not your home. This is not the resurrected life. You are citizens of a different country. And so trials and troubles will come. But friends, you know what you can do in the middle of them? Ask God for the help and the power to rejoice. That's what Paul said to the Thessalonians. Rejoice in all circumstances. Or give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always, pray continually. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. This is resurrection life. To be able to not just be okay with the trials and troubles, but to somehow miraculously by the Spirit rejoice in them. Give thanks in them. You see, that's impossible. Resurrection life. Two more, quickly. When God allows or causes conflicts in relationships that we might learn to humble ourselves to confess where we are wrong, to ask for forgiveness, 
and to seek peace and reconciliation. Did you know that blessed are the peacemakers? For they will inherit what? The earth. Now you can't be a peacemaker without what? War, conflict. You see, God allows conflict to happen in your life with other people so that you can learn to resolve and be a reconciler. Because you know who God is? God is a reconciler. And he's given us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. Not just be reconciled to God, but also that we might continually be reconciled to each other. Friends, this is, recon- this is resurrection life. When there's conflict and trouble and trial and we don't just say, all right, I'm done with you, stiff arm. Rather, we humble ourselves, we communicate, we confess where we're wrong, we ask for forgiveness, we forgive, and we're all good again. Friends, that's resurrection life. That is not happening in our culture and often it's not happening in our relationships, but that is life in the spirit. One more. When God allows or causes bodily fatigue so that we might not give hope to this body. God doesn't want us hoping in this life and in this body. That doesn't mean you don't take care of it. Eat your spinach, man. Like, take the vitamins. Eat the beets. I love beets. They're fantastic. Eat the elderberry juice. Drink it. You know, do all that stuff. Work out. Run marathons. Go to the gym. But don't put hope in this body because your hope will be dashed to pieces. That means that when your body does start to fail you, which it will, just get older. That's all you got to (laughs) do. You don't have to despair, throw in the towel, crumble, be depressed. Why? Because you get a new body, friends. Your hope is not in this life and in this body. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't take care of it as as much as you can and do as good to this body as you can. It's the only one you got this side of heaven, but you're gonna get a new one. And so, again, resurrection life often looks like you being able to rest, have peace, and live in supernatural ways in which non-Christians can't and don't. You're okay with trials and tribulations. You're okay with your possessions being destroyed. You're okay with your body not working well. You're okay when conflicts come. You're okay when things don't go your way and your plans are frustrated. Why? Because you know that you are not your own. You're bought with a price. The Lord's will will be done. And we are subject to him joyfully, prayerfully. Now, he who gave his life that we might live, friends, we then in return give this new life back to him. It's our response. It's a reasonable response. And so let us remember that resurrection life looks kind of normal, but if you look underneath the surface, it's very supernatural. We do things that others can't by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let's, let's remember this new life that we have in us, this picture of resurrection life now, but not yet fulfilled. Jesus is the one who died and was resurrected. He is the first fruits of all those who will be raised from the dead. 
So we're gonna celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection now of Jesus. Uh, we're gonna have communion. So <clears throat> if all of you could stand, the communion elements will come around at this time. And you uh, are welcome to take communion with us. If you're a Christian, that's the only requirement. We would love for you to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes with us. Uh, please wait until everyone is served and then we will all take of the Lord's Supper together. Uh, this is a picture and symbol of Jesus' body broken and bloodshed for us. So let's sing, look for the gospel in this song. It's a beautiful gospel song. Uh, look for Jesus' body broken, bloodshed for us, and then I'll come back out and I'll lead us in communion. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. What you hold in your hands is a visible, physical representation of the body broken and bloodshed of Jesus. We do this every week because Jesus' life, death, and burial, and resurrection is the centrality of the Christian faith. We do this every week to remember why it is we are okay and safe. Because Jesus lived in our place he died in our place. He was buried and he was resurrected. And he is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep, meaning he is the first of all of us who will experience a resurrection like his. Friends, we should not despair. We should not fall into deep depression. Though I understand those are realities and those are also a part of being in a fallen world and still having the flesh and a broken body. But we have hope out in front of us. Massive hope. Resurrection hope. Let us together remember why we have resurrection hope. Jesus' body broken and bloodshed. Father, together we say thank you. We thank you that you did everything for us. You did not send your son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Father, we thank you that in your sovereign grace, you have caused us to be born again. You have caused us to believe. And we are alive. We are not in the flesh. We are in the spirit. Father, I pray that we would meditate on this reality and not let it just be an idea not let it be a concept, a piece of theology that we tuck away in our heads. Father, rather let this reality of being in the spirit be lived out even tonight and tomorrow. May we bless others as we've been blessed. May we forgive as we've been forgiven. May we be generous as you've been so generous to us. May we forgive and reconcile as we have been forgiven and reconciled. Father, may we have hope. Hope does not disappoint. Father, I pray that you would help us to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Father, I pray that no one in this room or under the sound of this prayer would be left without encouragement. God, may we encourage each other by your help to press forward and to go deeper with you and to go deeper with each other. 
Father, we thank you for Jesus in our place, making all this possible. And it's in his name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.